And I want to invite you as you're taking your seats to open up your Bibles to the book of Job. And uh, in your pew Bible, that's on page 350. In your own Bible, you'll find it in the wisdom section of your Bible. Or you can use the YouVersion Bible app. If you are new with us this morning or haven't been with us in a couple of weeks, maybe months, uh, we have been going through the entire scriptures. We're doing that for 2017. We've been using the story. The story covers the narrative part of the Bible. We finished the Old Testament right before summer started, and we're going to get into the new once fall kicks off. But in the middle there, not a narrative part, is the wisdom section of the Bible, which the story doesn't cover. So that's where we've been this summer. We've gone through each of those books briefly, and right now we're in the book of Job. And I want to just say to you, if you've never read the book of Job, it's a hard read. It's a challenging read. And more than any of the other books this summer, we're really taking it in pieces. And I also want to say in that regard, if you haven't been with us before, um, we're going to take it where we are today. I'm going to catch you up, but you really would may want to go back and even listen or watch those sermons because Job is a book in how it's told, let alone how I'm preaching it, that you need to appreciate the parts in order to understand the whole. Um, Job is an individual who is blameless and righteous and yet has the worst day ever, loses everything he has in one day save his life. And in the midst of that and the questions that it raises, uh, we are challenged in our own lives and in our own suffering. When we last left Job, he had three friends, Eliphaz, Bilidad, and Zophar, who had come to comfort him in the aftermath of his great suffering. And yet, if you were with us last week, they actually became, shockingly, a cruel extension of his agonizing pain. Initially, things started well. They had let their presence, their solidarity in sitting with Job in his grief for a week, for seven days, do all the talking. But then as Job began to vocalize his emotions and express his frustration with God, they found themselves unable to remain silent. As they each spoke, Job's friends reflected a sad truth that even friends with good intentions can hurt you. You might remember that advocacy on their part, gave way to prosecution as Job found himself put on trial as each of his three friends attempted to litigate the reason for his tragic circumstances. They all had their own take, but their argument was basically the same, that his suffering was obviously punishment from God, as this is how God works, blessing the righteous and chastising the disobedient, rooted in a theology of retribution or what some today call the prosperity gospel, they couldn't fathom that Job suffered for no reason. And therefore, they put tremendous pressure on Job to fess up and repent. If Job owns his sin and makes amends, then all will be set right again in his life. And even though this debilitating debate with his friends goes three full rounds and becomes increasingly, you might recall, mean-spirited, Job does not cave. He continues to insist upon his innocence not that he's perfect, but that he's blameless. He's done nothing wrong to deserve this. And more than this, Job rebukes the faith formula I just mentioned, this simple retribution equation that suffering is the result of sin in your life and blessing is when you live righteously. If this is most certainly true, Job asks, then why do the wicked prosper? Job cites example after example of people who are doing wrong, doing evil, and yet are living the good life. Job also points to the poor, the widow, and the orphan, through no fault of their own, they suffer, he says, and no one defends them. We ended last week as Job's friends finally gave up trying to argue, presumably because they perceived Job to be past the point of reaching. 
It's hard not to interpret their renewed silence with Job as anything more than a we are right and you are wrong and that's all there is to it attitude. One last time you might recall Job cried out to the Lord to come and meet him and then he was silent. Job's three friends are all talked out and so it would appear as Job. By all appearances as we come here today it would seem at this part in the story the perfect moment for God to show up. But looks can be deceiving. Today someone else is about to speak. His name is Elihu. Apparently, unbeknownst to us or anyone else, he's been waiting in the wings. Not mentioned as a friend, Elihu in chapter 32 is just an interested observer. He introduces himself as a rapt listener to their conversation, and then he will spend the next several chapters dropping some knowledge on all of them. Elihu fancies himself as the one who's finally going to provide Job and his companions with the answers they've been stumbling around and searching for, the right answers to the question of suffering. So let's listen into a sample of his presentation. I'm going to read to you from chapter 33. If you have those Bibles open, follow along. Hear Elihu. But now, Job, listen to my words. Pay attention to everything I say. I am about to open my mouth. My words are on the tip of my tongue. My words come from an upright heart. My lips sincerely speak what I know. The Spirit of the Lord has made me. The breath of the Almighty gives me life. Answer me then, if you can. Stand up and argue your case before me. I am the same as you in God's sight. I, too, am a piece of clay. No fear of me should alarm you, nor should my hand be heavy on you. But you have said in my hearing, I have heard the very words I am pure, I have done no wrong, I am clean and free from sin, yet God has found fault with me. He considers me his enemy, he fastens my feet in shackles, he keeps close watch on all my paths. But I tell you, I tell you, in this you are not right, for God is greater than any mortal. Why do you complain to him that he responds to no one's words? For God does not speak now one way, now another, though no, no one perceives it. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on people as they slumber in their beds, he may speak in their ears and terrify them with warnings to turn them from wrongdoing and keep them from pride, to preserve them from the pit, their lives from perishing by the sword. Or someone may be chastised on a bed of pain with constant distress in their bones so that their body finds food repulsive and their soul loathes the choicest meal. Their flesh wastes away to nothing. Their bones once hidden now stick out. They draw near to the pit and their life to the messengers of death. Yet if there is an angel at their side, a messenger, one out of a thousand, sent to tell them how to be upright. And he is gracious to that person and says to God, spare them from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom for them. Let their flesh be renewed like a child's. Let them be restored as in the days of their youth. Then that person can pray to God and find favor with him. They will see God's face and shout for joy and he will restore them to full well-being. And they will go to others and say, I have sinned. I have perverted what is right, but I did not get what I deserved. God has delivered me from going down to the pit, and I shall live to enjoy the light of life. God does all these things to a person twice, even three times, to turn them back from the pit, that the light of life may shine on them. Pay attention, Job, and listen to me. Be silent, and I will speak. If you have anything to say, answer me. Speak up, for I want to vindicate you. But if not, then listen to me. Be silent, and I will teach you wisdom. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A couple of things we need to know about Elihu that I didn't mention earlier that come up in his introductory chapter, a chapter back, 32. What we know about Elihu is we know first that he's young. He tells us, in fact, when he shows up, uh, that his reason for not speaking thus far is because he believes it's important to let his elders have their say first. So we know he's young. We also know that he's angry. This is mentioned several times, in fact. Elihu has been patient, not speaking up to this point. He's been a good listener, even. As you may have noticed, as we read, he quotes back many of the things that have already been said. But he's reached a boiling point and can no longer remain silent. Why? Elihu is frustrated with his elders, Job's friends, for their unconvincing arguments, for failing to prove their case to Job. But Elihu, being very zealous of God's glory, is equally outraged with Job for being obstinate in not recognizing his faults, in justifying himself and not God. And, just truth be told, Job, in his understandable frustration and lamentable hurting, is close to the edge, near his breaking point. In his last speech, Job declared God to be unfair and starts to question if he, is he, if he is even just at all. Elihu tells us as he begins that he bases his ideas on what he's observed and experienced. And as he begins, he bluntly declares in chapter 32 what he's observed and experienced is that age doesn't always equal wisdom. And while there's truth in this, that older people can be just as petty, selfish, and foolish as anyone else, what we're going to see as we reflect on what Elihu has to share is that youth is no guarantee of innocence or intelligence either. To complete Oscar Wilde's quote, with age comes wisdom, but sometimes age comes alone. What I want to do this morning is I want to take you through Elihu's arguments. I want to give them a fair hearing, and then I want us to reflect on his answers to the question of Job's pain and dealing with suffering like it. I don't know if you picked this up in what we read from chapter 33, but much like Eliphaz, Eliphaz, the first of Job's friends to speak way earlier, Elihu is emboldened in what he has to say in his convictions because of divine inspiration that he claims. He claims he's filled with the Spirit. And you also might have caught that, interestingly, Elihu states his intention is to vindicate and restore Job. And that's, if you read through these chapters, throughout his words to Job, Elihu repeatedly calls him to consider the greatness of God and the inscrutable wonders of the Lord's creation. In proclaiming God's greatness, Elihu hopes to show Job he is wrong to contend with a God so much greater than humanity. God, Elihu insists, rules justly, showing no preference for the wealthy or those in positions of power. All people are subject to his judgment. But here's the key. It may sound like we've heard this before. Here's the difference. Unlike Job's three friends, Elihu does not attribute Job's suffering to what has happened before, to something he did wrong. He does not, you'll notice, advise Job to confess sins of his past. Here's the key. Elihu attributes Job's suffering to his sin in this present moment. In putting his self-righteousness, his innocence, over and above God's righteousness, his justness. In other words, to clarify this for us, where Job's friends argued that he was suffering because he had sinned, Elihu is arguing Job has sinned because he was suffering. Huh? What? Elihu is basically saying God brought his judgment 
upon Job in advance, descended all this suffering upon Job in anticipation of what he would do. Not because of how Job did sin, but how Job eventually would sin. Who the L is Elihu? <laughs> Who is this guy? Who does he think he is? He's thinking outside the box. He believes he's discovered an innovation in our typical conundrum of why do bad things happen to good people. And again, I'm going to continue to flesh this out for you so you appreciate it or not. Instead of looking back for some sort of cause for suffering and asking, is suffering due to Job's sin or God's injustice? And that's the thing. Elihu wants to reject both premises. He believes Job's innocence. He doesn't think this has anything to do with what Job did in the past, but he also doesn't think that God's in, unjust. So he rejects both of those premises. So instead of looking back for some cause for suffering, Elihu stresses looking forward to try and identify a purpose for Job's suffering. If God is good and almighty, what we need to ask is, what possible good could there be in him allowing us to suffer like this? To continue to bring it home for you. Whereas Job's three friends said his suffering was punitive, a means of remediation, and therefore Job needed to repent, Elihu insists Job's suffering is meant to be educational, and therefore he needs to learn something. Whereas Job complains God has not spoken to him, he's not explained himself, Elihu contends, yes, God has spoken, that the Lord speaks to us through dreams and visions and whispers in the midst of our pain. While Job's friends cajoled him to initiate restoration with God, repent, get it going, Elihu stresses God is initiating restoration already in Job's life, speaking to him through his afflictions, even on the bed of his suffering. In other words, Elihu is advocating the point of view that God uses pain to speak to us. Like a parent with a child, the Lord disciplines, the Lord warns and corrects those whom he loves. As he specifically articulated in verses 17 through 18, pain is a part of God's way of correcting and preventing us from going off the rails, to turn us from wrongdoing, to keep us from pride, to preserve us from the pit, and from perishing by the sword. Okay, that's the general argument, but what exactly does Elihu think Job needs to learn through all of this? Well, here it is as you read through these chapters. For Elihu, true righteousness, which Job claims, true righteousness, Elihu asserts, would reflect more humility on Job's part. Job, however, is too eager, too presumptuous in clearing his own reputation at the expense of God's reputation. And so for Elihu, Job's suffering was God's effort at prevention. In dealing with inclinations in Job, specifically inherent self-righteousness that the Lord knew Job needed to deal with. And now, for Elihu, how Job is acting towards God proves this flaw was indeed present. Job's lack of humility is the smoking gun, the evidence against him, proof that this painful corrected was needed. I don't know where you're sitting in this right now, but this is one grotesque circular argument. This is one grotesque circular argument that at the end, Elihu con concludes by describing two possible reactions to the Lord's proactive discipline. Listen and learn, repent and be restored to a life of prosperity and happiness. Or live in denial, 
continue to be self-righteous and end up meeting a violent death divorced from the glory of God. Your move, Job. Just when you thought it couldn't get any worse. Just when you thought you'd heard everything, right? What we're going to do today, having now taken stock of these chapters, I want us to reflect on two insights that we can take away from this part of the story. Two things I want us to chew on as we have throughout this sermon series. And the two things that we're going to chew on today, based upon what Elihu puts forward, is first, we need to appreciate the difference between our presumed reasons for suffering and the results God can bring through our suffering. I'm going to say that one more time. We need to appreciate the difference between our presumed reasons for suffering and the results God can bring through our suffering. And the second thing we'll look at in a little bit is we need to be careful of speaking for God rather than witnessing to the character of God. So first, we need to appreciate the difference between, between our presumed reasons for suffering and the results that God can bring through our suffering. You may, if, if you were here last week, I, you see another connection that just like last week, we as believers may hear our own voice offering the same counsel to the hurting as Elihu does to Job. We may not be as eloquent or lengthy in our presentation as Elihu, but to those who are suffering, don't we, haven't you sometimes made similar statements? Saying things like, God whispers to us in our pleasures and shouts at us in our pains? Or telling someone adversity is God's way of getting your attention? Or saying to someone, God is not punishing you, but strengthening your faith through testing. Now, once again, as was the case last week, we know from the very start of how the book of Job begins that Elihu is wrong in ascribing these reasons to Job's suffering. And as I told you, that's the point of the prologue. That's why it's set up the way that it is. Because nowhere in the story, when we get into this and we start to wrestle with it, nowhere in the story is it suggested that God allows the tragedy that befalls Job to instill some virtue or moral quality that he is lacking. The prologue clearly and unmistakably establishes it is not because of any fault in Job's life that his affliction comes. Quite the contrary. It's his exemplary character that attracts the notice he gets in heaven, right? There is no suggestion that Job bears some immaturity or inadequacy in his faith and therefore is meant to learn something through his suffering. So we know Elihu is wrong. And yet, if we're honest, still we might argue, okay, even though Elihu, we know he's wrong in applying this reason to Job's circumstances, isn't what he argues what the scriptures tell us about the reason for suffering? Isn't this the reason the Bible gives that God allows suffering in our lives in order to teach us something? to grow us in our relationship with him? I mean, can't you and I cite passages we've heard before from James chapter one about regarding our trials as joys because God is working perseverance in us, making us whole and complete? Or maybe Romans chapter five, verses three through five pop into your mind when Paul writes, we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Or maybe we don't know scripture, maybe we know stories and we go, wait, what about that story? The story of Joseph who suffered by being sold into slavery by his brothers and then being wrongly accused and sent to languish in prison for years. And then Joseph, of all people, declares, what you intended for evil, God intended for good to accomplish what is now being done. 
We advance scriptures like these as our proof texts for the argument that the Lord brings suffering, allows pain in our lives in order to teach us, to mature us into the fullness of who we were created to be. But what I want to suggest to you this morning, what I want you to think about is, is that actually what these scriptures I just mentioned are saying? Is that what they're saying? Is this what God's word teaches us about suffering? If you haven't been with us, I gave this on week one of this series, but spoiler alert, the book of Job does not answer the why question of suffering. However, to be absolutely clear, and this is an appropriate time for us to talk about it, the Bible does articulate several reasons for suffering. And as a way of answering the question I proposed, let's look at the reasons the Bible articulates for suffering. Not necessarily in Job, but elsewhere. Couple of reasons why they're suffering according to the Bible. First, some suffering is of our own making because of choices we make. Such suffering simply can arise because we're limited creatures. I mean, there are limitations to what our, our mind and our bodies can do. When we push beyond those limits, we can suffer, right? If I decide right now to drop down and try to do the splits, I'm gonna experience severe pain and suffering of my own making, right? Sometimes we suffer because of our limits. But suffering can also arise of our own making, not because of reaching our limits, but because we behave badly and act out in ways contrary to God's instructions. And when that happens, we can get hurt. And when we do, we are the source of our suffering. In Psalm 38, David writes, his wounds stink and fester because of his own foolishness. So the Bible says sometimes we suffer because suffering's of our own making, the choices we make. But sometimes, the Bible says, suffering we experience is the result of the decisions of others. When a person behaves badly and acts out in ways contrary to God's instructions, we can not only hurt ourselves, we can hurt others around us. When a person chooses to get drunk and then drive, innocent people can suffer and even die. Some suffering is a result of the choices we make, some suffering is the result of the decisions of others, but the Bible also says that suffering can also be the result of what the Bible refers to as principalities and powers. And principalities and powers refers to evil. We might say the demonic, those influences and attitudes and actions contrary to God's intention or design for this world. And principalities and powers, that's kind of the suffering that comes from that is suffering that becomes ingrained and entrenched in the wider culture and society ingrained and entrenched in the wider culture and society. Racism is a great example of this. And right now we are having a huge conversation still about racism. This idea of elevating one ethnic group over and against another, particularly based on the color of one's skin, is not just an individual problem. We need to understand that. It is not just an individual problem, it's a systemic cause of pain and suffering. And the Bible helps us to understand why. What we're failing to understand in our cultural conversation right now is when a community of people abuse others because of race, and this happens over a long period of time, then the culture and institutions and power structures of that culture become racist, and it becomes a spiritual power of evil. This is why, even if individuals are suddenly no longer racist, the power of racism still influences and controls society and leads to others getting hurt. The Bible says some suffering comes by choices of our own making. Some suffering comes through the decisions of others. Some suffering comes from evil that is entrenched, becomes entrenched and ingrained in the culture and society, principalities and powers. 
But the Bible also says we experience suffering due to the fact that we live in a dynamic and shifting universe. Science continues to discover that the universe we live in is not fixed, it's not stable, it's not entirely predictable or controllable. When we build our homes or cities on fault lines or in a floodplain, or when we expect to develop things below sea level and just hold back the ocean with a wall, we are risking pain and suffering because stuff happens. Understood in this way, earthquakes, tornadoes, floods, and forest fires, bacteria, viruses, and genetic mutations are not acts of judgment from God, but are the natural process of a universe that is continuing to grow, a creation that is broken and longing for its redemption with the sons of God, as the scriptures say. Some suffering is of our own making, the choices we make. Some suffering is of the decisions of others. Some suffering is of evil that is institutionalized, ingrained within our culture. Some suffering is a result of a universe that is dynamic and shifting. And finally, the Bible says there is some pain and suffering that results from God calling us to stand against evil and to risk exposure to protect and defend those who are hurting. Hear that clearly. The suffering comes when we answer God's call to stand against evil and risk exposure to protect and defend those who are hurting. In other words, to follow Christ, to represent the character of God, is to open oneself up to suffer like Jesus did for all the world. So let's recap. The Bible tells us that God does indeed create a world with risks and challenges and choices wherein pain is a part of life apart from sin, but also where sin is possible and therefore can increase the suffering we experience. According to the scriptures, suffering can be a product of our own making, can be the making of others, it can be the result of institutionalized evil, it can be the byproduct of a dynamic and shifting universe, or it can be the consequence of standing up and embracing the pain of others. But the Bible does not say that the Lord causes us to suffer or sends down pain upon us to teach us or grow us in our faith. But what about the scriptures I referred to earlier, the ones we all know? Isn't that what they're saying? Read them again. There is a difference between perceiving those verses as attributing the reason for God allowing suffering and understanding them as declaring the results, the outcome the Lord can and will bring through our suffering and pain. The fact that we are sinners and live in a broken world and God is just doesn't mean every difficulty that comes our way is intended for educational reasons, divinely purposed to teach us something. That God can bring good out of our suffering and our pain is not the same thing as God brings pain and suffering in order to do some good in us. The Lord is not the cause of evil in our lives or in this world. But the Lord stands and suffers with us against evil we have created. And despite that evil, is able to overcome it. To bring good out of it. Perseverance, character, hope, faith, Trust, these are not the reasons for our suffering. These are the results our Father can and will bring through our suffering. And that is an important difference. Still, 
we might say, and it's been really fascinating, the conversations that's come out of this sermon series, and that's what I love. This shouldn't be a monologue. This should spark conversation. Some people have asked as we've been going through Job, yeah, okay, I, yeah, I get it. Okay, we shouldn't try to give someone the reasons for what they're going through. I get that, that that's not really sensitive or that's not caring for them. But as we sit here and we watch Job and I think about people in our lives, people started to have started to ask, how long do we just let them go on? I mean, how long do we let them sit there and fester in their pain? I mean, bear with me here. Elihu, even though he's wrong about the reasons for Job's suffering, Remember, he's arguing Job is starting to cross the line in the midst of his pain. Job, in his self-defense, never forsakes or curses the Lord, but as time goes on, in arguing he didn't deserve this suffering, Job does begin to speak inappropriately about God. Even to the point, as I told you, the last words he says is he starts to openly suggest God is not just, and he's starting to disrespect and misrepresent the character of the Lord. Next week, just to prepare you for this, we'll even hear God will agree Job is pushing his hand a bit, getting a little too self-absorbed. Not a sin per se, but certainly not moving in a healthy direction. So, at least in this regard, can't we say that Elihu was right to speak up? Doesn't this feed the question that I'm telling you I'm getting of how long do we let someone go on? Especially if we fear their pain or their grief is taking them in a dangerous direction. And as a way of answering this question, I want to bring you the second thing for us to chew on. How long do we let someone go on? Here's what I want us to remember. We need to be careful of speaking for God rather than witnessing to the character of God. We need to be careful of speaking for God rather than witnessing to the character of God. Let me explain. Two observations from the story of Job as a way of unpacking this. The first is this. Do not forget or miss, that Elihu is a stranger to Job. He is not a friend. He's not listed as one of Job's friends. Job never engages or responds to him at all. And for me, what help, how this helps me is reminding us we need to have relational capital. We need to invest the time. We need to make the sacrifice of spending time with another person, listening to them, sharing life with them, building intimacy before we can ever think to presume to come alongside them and start offering advice. Before. Elihu doesn't have any of this. He hasn't established any of this. He just starts talking. And if you notice, Elihu never stops talking. He goes on interrupted for five chapters. Job never gets a word in edgewise. He does that thing, right, where he's like, Job, be silent. Speak up. Tell me what you think. Job never gets a word in edgewise. Elihu doesn't pause or invite conversation. He just lectures Job. And this reminds us that talking at someone is not the same thing as talking with them. At least with Job's friends, there was some back and forth conversation. When we're trying to help someone see or address something they can't recognize, we're never gonna get there. We're never gonna get them to see with just one conversation. Please put that in the back of your minds. Never with one conversation, never with one big endless lecture. Engaging them, listening to them, and processing with them is what's needed. And, and, and again, I, I think it's so easy for us because we're so into the story to forget the context. Remember, as Elihu starts speaking, he starts talking, Job is still a bag of bones 
sitting on a trash heap near death. And to add insult to injury, he's just been through the ringer for three rounds thanks to friends who supposedly came to comfort him. And don't miss this. Elihu knows all of this. He tells us he's been listening and watching, but clearly he hasn't been paying attention because Elihu never mentions anything about Job's condition, his person, his being. Rather, Elihu makes clear what his primary motivation is. His primary motivation in speaking up is not to come alongside Job. It's to defend God. Elihu wants to defend God, and it's ironic, really. Elihu is so caught up in the truth and the wonder and majesty of the Lord and his creation that he fails to truly love and care for one of God's creatures, Job. And I've told you the book of Job is a mirror to us. Can we not say that we sometimes fall into the same hole? Well, we're so caught up with wanting people to know the love and grace of Jesus Christ, how wonderful God is to speak the truth, to stand up for the truth, and yet we fail to reflect that, the, the love of that truth in how we treat the very people we're speaking to. Beloved, hear me. Church, listen to me. And this may be fighting words for some of you, and I'm willing to have a further conversation if we need to. Hear me. Listen to me. God doesn't need us to defend him. No matter how wrongly others talk about our Father, whatever the reasons they have for doing so, and here's the thing, if you really strip back most of the reasons why people talk badly about God, it usually, if you dig deep enough, comes out of a place of hurt or pain. No matter how wrongly anyone may talk about our Father, our God, you don't need to defend the Lord. God, our Father, the author of all life, the creator of the universe, the Alpha and the Omega has no problem, no reservation, no hindrance in speaking for himself. Trust me. Trust his word. But you say, well, yes, but doesn't the Lord speak through his people? Isn't that how he speaks to us? He speaks through his people. That's how he addresses others. And yes, the Lord, more often than not, crazy as it is, jars of clay that we are, uses us to speak to each other. But don't get so full of yourself. Let's not be so full of ourselves to believe we are the sole or even the most important vehicle of communication our Father uses. Because the truth is, we often interpret and speak incorrectly when it comes to God. And that's why the Lord gave us his word and his spirit. Sent us his spirit. God doesn't need us to defend him, beloved. God calls us to reflect him. To represent his character to each other. Not so much in what we say, but in how we live, how we treat each other. Because that is the more poignant, the more powerful, the more profound witness. So we come near to the end of the story and Job, yes indeed, may be dancing near the edge of the cliff, but notice he still hasn't let go of God yet. And even more importantly, as you're going to see next week, the Lord refuses to let go of him. But here and now, we sit and as we listen to Elihu and as we consider Job, maybe we reflect upon that statement, that expression, suffering makes us who we are. Suffering makes us who we are. While this may be true, it doesn't mean all suffering is a means of God's discipline or instruction. There is pain and loss we experience that have nothing to do with sin in our lives and is not meant to teach us anything. Sometimes suffering can indeed lead to a person becoming stronger in the faith. Yes, indeed, amen. But other times the sufferer is left broken and empty. 
There isn't always a silver lining to our suffering. There isn't always a bright side to our pain. Please hear that. There are some things we cannot recover from. There are some things that kill us. Not just physically, but emotionally, mentally, even spiritually. There are some hits, there are some hurts, there are some wounds from which we cannot get back up, from which we, we cannot recover. But the good news, the gospel is, we can be resurrected. We can be resurrected. And resurrection doesn't deny we died. We were dead. Resurrection is being given the power to live again. Resurrection isn't forgetting about the past. Jesus still had his scars. But resurrection isn't living the way we did before. Because when you've been resurrected, you can't. You've been profoundly changed. Resurrection is new life, changed life. Not stuck in our pain, not sealed in the tomb, but being able to rise above it, to go beyond it. But here's the thing. Resurrection is not something we can accomplish. We can't accomplish it within ourselves. You can't resurrect someone else. Resurrection is only a work of God. And so this morning as we chew on this, as we chew on this part of Job's story, let us be encouraged. Let us be reminded. Instead of attributing God's reason for the suffering of others, and we seem so fixated on that, instead of trying to attribute God's reasons for the suffering of others, let's witness to the results of our Father as he's brought it from the pain in our own life. Instead of speaking to someone else and telling them what's wrong with them, what God's trying to teach them, why this is happening to them, speak and better yet just live reflecting how God has worked and brought results through the pain in your own life. Because like Job, when we put our lives in God's hands, no matter what the circumstances, the Lord can take our loss The Lord can take our bereavement. The Lord can take our bewilderment and establish an avenue by which we can draw near to him and more deeply receive him than we ever have before when we were at ease. This is not the reason for our suffering. This is the result, the grace God can bring out of our suffering. And it is a result most profoundly and cosmically seen in and through Jesus Christ who takes our suffering into the very heart of the divine life, bears it there, and then wears it in the form of a cross in order to one day bring us all into a world without pain, without tears, and without suffering. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen.